Good morning, everybody. The first slide is going to say, what are you grateful for? So why don't you list out some things you're grateful for today? Life. Life. Family. Family. Help. Help. Friends. Finding a clicker. clicker. (laughs) Let's let's wait until we do it (laughs) and be grateful for it. (laughs) Uh, What else? A win. Hey. Some of us barely did that, so you got to be sensitive to more needy members of your congregation. I'm thankful for Aaron. Aaron May. What else? Anything else? John, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I'm glad you said that because I was sitting there and I was thinking about how Jesus said the greatest among you would be a servant. And I was watching John, and you guys see what he does on Sunday mornings, but you don't see all the hours that he puts in during the weeks and, and all the work he puts in. And he's up here a lot of times doing things on the building and the facility. Nobody's really asked him. He's just doing it because he loves our church and because he loves Jesus. And so John is somebody I'm extremely grateful for, uh, somebody that serves our church in a really good way. Amen. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and I was... I came up with this. This is what I'm thankful for. Anybody know what this is? Google Maps. <laughs> Airplanes land just a little bit to the left there. Anybody know what this is a Google Map of? Here's what I'll tell you. I'm grateful I figured out how to get this onto a slide because it took me the whole time I'm going, ah, I need a teenager to help me out. Teenagers. This is uh, an overhead satellite view of our church. And so it it took me way longer than it should have to get this onto a slide, but this is one of the things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for church family. And see if you can guess this one. Anybody know what this is? Ohio. Uh, So this is just a zoomed out nighttime version. Anybody know what this is? (laughs) This is the earth. It's the wrong side, I believe, but uh, my geography is not too great. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this. Does anybody know what this photo is from? Voyager, there we go. So, in the year 1977, some of us weren't around for this, but in the year 1977, uh, some people got together and they said, hey, you know what we should do? We should put some computers and some metal together and we should explode it off of the earth, away from the earth at a really high speed, and then we'll put some cameras on this thing and it will take photographs of all the other celestial bodies in our solar system. And so they're like, yeah, that seems to make sense, so let's do that. <laughs> and, and so they got together and they did this twice. Voyager 2 launched in August of 1977, and then Voyager 1 launched in September of 1977. And so does anybody know why they're reversed in the names? No. <laughs> got a quick no over there. No. Uh, So the reason is because Voyager 1 was going to exit the solar system before Voyager 2 via gravity slingshots and things like that. Voyager 1 was going to get more uh, speed eventually and and leave the solar system faster. And so they shot these things in 1977. And so gradually over the years, they would come back together and all these scientists and people, they would say, here's what Voyager recently unveiled for us. And there's this entire documentary on Netflix. It's really good. And they go into all these, uh, these pictures of Jupiter and these pictures of Saturn and just showing how we discovered all these things about these planets as these, uh, they're not satellites, these probes went past them. 
And so then in 1977, they got together and, and they shared this photo, and, and this is us, right? Anybody that was born before 1990, this is us. Every one of us is in this photo. And, and as a lifelong Trekkie, right? We, I know we've got a few of us. <laughs> I've always been obsessed with space. I love space. But, but as I look at this photo, I, I can't help but be incredibly humbled, right? Everyone you've ever known has been in that tiny dot. Every religion that's ever existed, every faith that's ever existed, that tiny dot. Every philosophy, every book ever written, every movie ever watched, every song ever composed, everything that exists as far as the human race goes has happened in that tiny dot. And if that's not an incredibly humbling thing, I don't know what is. And so the first person to present this was actually a guy by the name of Carl Sagan. A lot of you have probably heard of Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan was this famous scientist, but also a very strong atheist. And so for Carl Sagan, he looks at this photo, and to him, this is a great reason to not believe in God, right? Because he looks and he says, in all this universe, this cold, dark universe, there's one spot. Surely this is an accident, right? And for Christians, though, we read the evidence very differently, right? We look at this and we say, all of this cold, dark universe, but here is a home, this tiny place, this tiny backwater in the universe is perfectly breathable. We can walk outside in t-shirts sometimes. There are animals and plants, there's water. This tiny place was created as a home. And so, so there's a lot of different ways to understand that, right? And so as I look at it, though, I think it sure does look like we all live in the same neighborhood, right? It sure does seem strange to ask, well, who's my neighbor when we can see these people are our neighbors, right? We live in this tiny dot together. So, so this whole conversation started a month ago. We were finishing up our parables, right? And we, were, we came finally to the parable of the Samaritan. And, and this rich guy comes to Jesus and this teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he says, hey, uh, make me feel better about myself, right? <laughs> what do I have to do? to be a good guy. And so Jesus says, you know, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. The guy says, yeah, yeah, I mean, easy. So who's my neighbor, though? And, and, and then this conversation is kicked off. And one of the things that we were doing in that is we're asking ourselves, how do we read Scripture in a better way? And if you remember, we're comparing exegesis and eisegesis, right? So in eisegesis, we decide ahead of time, hey, this is what the Bible tells me, and I'm going to go to it, and it's going to say exactly what I always assumed it would say. And so this is a way that we read into the Bible. And, and all of us are guilty of this to a degree, and so we have to be extremely careful to not continue to do this. On the other hand, we have exegesis. And exegesis is a, a process where we go and we say, what is the Bible saying for what it says? And how can it correct my life? How can it change my life? How can it inform how I, how I live and what I do, what I believe about God? And if you remember, there's concentric circles, right? And so in exegesis, we start with the text itself, and we say, what does this text mean to us? What does it mean in its original context? And we just read the text. Then we expand a little bit and we say, what about the chapters around this? What was going on in the world around this? What was going on to the people as they first heard this? And then we expand it beyond that and we say, what was going on in the rest of this book? What's the purpose of this book as it was originally given? Then we go beyond that and we say, what about the author? If this was the Gospel of Luke, we say, what else did Luke write? He wrote the book of Acts. And so what does Acts tell us? Then we go beyond that. <laughs> and this is overwhelming, right? This seems like such an overwhelming process. But then we go to the entire scripture. And that's kind of what we've been doing with this series 
as we're asking ourselves, who's my neighbor? We found out, even them, right? <laughs> even them. Whoever them is, that's your neighbor. And so I mentioned Carl Sagan a minute ago, and I want to encourage you, is Carl Sagan our neighbor? Are the people that are like Carl Sagan, are they our neighbor? Sometimes the temptation is to look at people like Carl Sagan and say, that's my enemy, I should hate that person. But Jesus says, do good to those who persecute you, bless those who may not agree with you, right? <laughs> so even Carl Sagan is our neighbor, even the Samaritans are our neighbor. And so then we started asking ourselves, well, what did Jesus understand it to mean when he said neighbor? What would the original hearers have understood neighbor? And so what we've been doing this month, so we've been going through the Old Testament, We've spent three weeks examining what they would have understood a neighbor to be. So the Old Testament is the Bible Jesus would have read, right, for the most part. This is what Jesus would have understood as God's record of revelation, right? This is how God had revealed himself to the Jewish people. So this is the Bible Jesus would have had. So what we've been doing is we've been working our way back. And so the first week, we saw this widow of Zarephath. And so hospitality means even sharing when we lack. So this widow is waiting to die, basically, right? This widow who's not an Israelite, she's not Jewish. And then suddenly, Elijah the prophet comes into her life. He says, hey, give me something to eat. <laughs> and, and she didn't say, no, first of all, I don't worship the same God as you. Second, you're a foreigner and I don't like you. Third, you look weird. Right? She didn't say any of those things. She just said, yeah, come on in. And, and there was a little back and forth. But she said, come on in, and she shared what she lacked with him. And, and so it's kind of shocking, right? The good example in Kings is not a Jewish person. It's not even uh, a person from Judah. It's not even a person from the close. It is a person who worships Baal originally, right? This person was a neighbor to Elijah, and at the end of it, she makes a proclamation that surely the Lord Yahweh is the Lord. So this is a, a preliminary skirmish between the Baals and Yahweh. So we saw first that one of the things that we do for a neighbor is we share even when we lack. The second thing we saw is we saw Pharaoh's daughter, another person who would be them, Right? And Pharaoh's daughter found this baby Moses, and against her father's wishes, against the decrees of Pharaoh, against the law of the land, she said, I'm going to adopt and care for this baby. And through that, she showed, I think, that she would follow the Lord Yahweh. She showed, at least in a degree, that she believed that God who created life was more important than Pharaoh, who her people worshipped as a god. So we saw Pharaoh's daughter, who said, I'm going to put the call of God of life above the calls of this world. And so we saw how Yahweh's priorities have to take precedent over all others. Then we saw Abraham, and he's just hanging out in his tent, and suddenly there's strangers, right? And he welcomed them in, and he gave his very best to them. So we saw how hospitality means we treat people, we treat strangers with our very best, as if this could be God himself. So those are all the hows, but if you have kids... <laughs> Why, right? Anybody ever deal with this question? So we have to deal with the why, right? And, and one of the things that we do a lot of times is we say just because we said so, and that does not work. It doesn't work, and we shouldn't do it. We should stop. We shouldn't do this just because God said so. We should do it because there's a good reason behind it. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2 today. This is the account 
of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And breath is the same word as spirit throughout the Hebrew and the Greek. And so there's a a double meaning here. There's the breath, but there's also the spirit infused into this man. The man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out from the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx is also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it, it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. It lo- runs along the east of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And they begin this covenant together. So, very short answer. So we are hospitable. The reason why we are hospitable is we are hospitable because God is hospitable. We are created in the image of God. So I want to take you back to this. Look at all that surrounds this tiny blue dot. Look at all the space out there. And how many other places are suitable for human beings to live? So into this entire dark and cold universe, God created a home. And he lovingly and, and took time to form this home. He made it warm. He made the sun shine. He made birds to fly and he made plants to eat. God is hospitable. God created a home for human beings to live. Now, I'd be remiss if we didn't attack a certain belief system before we get too far here. So, in the first and second century, third century, there were, there were Christians that split off from the main Orthodox group of Christians. And this group of Christians came to be known as the Gnostics. And so you might be familiar with uh, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or some of these other schismatic-type Gospels. And they've kind of resurfaced and gotten a lot of popularity in the 21st, 20th century. But there was this entire group of people called the Gnostics. And basically, the Gnostics approached the faith, and they said, you know, first of all, we don't like the Old Testament, so that's out of here. Second, 
We think that there were two gods, actually. There was one evil god, and then there was another good god. So this evil god, this evil god created everything, and so all of flesh, all of matter, all these things belong to the evil creator god. But the good spirit god sent Jesus to save us from that. So the good spirit god sent Jesus to save us from all this evil flesh, all this evil matter. So Jesus came and he delivered people through knowledge, hence the name Gnostic, right? And so if you could just learn enough, if you could just believe enough, if you could just feel the right things, if you could just think the right ways, suddenly your, your spirit would go and transcend this fleshly realm and you belong to the good spirit God instead of the evil creator God. Now, against Gnosticism, Christianity came up with this idea that was in the Old Testament of God creating everything from nothing and that God was a good creator God and that all of creation was good and that God created creation for us to enjoy, for us to know each other. And so ever since then, there's been this back and forth between the Gnostic dualism where there is an evil matter, an evil flesh, an evil world, and a good creator God, or a good spirit God. That's Gnosticism. But then Christian creationism says there is one God who created all the earth and all things, and God belongs to spirit, but also matter as well. So this is the conversation that's been going on for a very long time. And as a result of that, we have some Gnosticism that has slowly seeped into modern Christianity. We've started to believe that God does not care about his creation. We've started to believe that this world doesn't matter at all to God because God is spirit and God is, uh, God is beyond that. And that someday we'll just leave and then it won't exist anymore. But I would encourage you, if you think that, to reread Revelation 21. So, Christian creationism says that God created all things and he created all things good. So, God is a hospitable God. So what does this mean for us? First, we are hospitable. The reason why we're hospitable, we're hospitable because God is hospitable. God is a good creator and he made a good world for us to enjoy. God is welcoming us into this world. God loves and so God took the very first step. This is another way of saying that hospitality is the first step in relationship, and God took that first step. God had to, right? We didn't exist. <laughs> so God took this first step of creating beings to have a relationship with. And so what does that mean for us? It means that the start of all relationships are a step of hospitality. And it may be simply a, a welcoming handshake. It may be simply a hug. But a lot of times it starts with, hey, would you like to grab a coffee? Hey, would you guys like to come over for dinner? Hospitality is the first step towards having any kind of relationship, and it's necessary and important. <laughs> Hospitality is how we mimic the God of good creation. And the second thing is that one aspect of hospitality is gratitude and reciprocity. And what that means is that we are grateful for the God who created, therefore we are hospitable as well. Now this is a, a challenging conversation, and for some reason this has gotten to be kind of controversial, but I want to encourage you to think about it like this. If you welcomed someone into your home, if you said, hey, we've got a place for you to stay, we'd love to have you here, and they said, hey, thank you for that, and then when they got in, they're staying in your basement perhaps, they got a hammer and they just started knocking holes in your wall, and then they said, hey, thanks for this food, and then they threw it on the ground. 
They said, hey, I really appreciate the water. And they went out and they, got, they drained their car of motor oil and put it in your drinking water. What would you think about this person if they did that? <laughs> this is not a good guest, right? And, and somehow, I think the Christian identity in the 21st century has gotten mixed in with Gnosticism, and we've started to view creation care as if it's an evil thing. And this is strange, and it's beyond me, but I want you to think about if God created creation as a welcome for us, how are we called to care for his good creation? And this is hard to talk about in the 21st century, isn't it? I'm even nervous mentioning it, <laughs> let me tell you. But one aspect of hospitality is that we are rejecting God's hospitality when we don't take care of his good earth. Our Gnosticism has seeped in and we say, God doesn't care about this world anymore. He's going to throw it away. And that is not the teaching of the Bible. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean we all have to stop eating meat? We all get rid of our cars right away? We explode them so that nobody else can drive? No, I'm not saying that. There, but... What I'm also not saying is that it is a Christian issue if you went and you got a 55-gallon drum of oil and you dumped it into a lake or a river. That is a spiritual issue. We have an obligation to care for our world because this is God's world and it's not ours. And if we abuse this world, then we are abusing what is God's. And this is a hard thing, isn't it? So where's the line between that? I don't know. I drive a car. <laughs> I eat meat. I do a lot of things. I'm, I'm wearing clothing that was probably not easy to produce. So where's the line between that? I don't know. But we have to talk about that. We have to say, this is God's world, and we have to take care of it. What does that look like for us? So part of hospitality is reciprocating. It is taking care of what God has given us. And the third, hospitality is action. Go back to Gnosticism and classical Christianity. Gnosticism is all about spirit transcending this world. And so if you feel a certain way, good enough in Gnosticism, right? But I want to encourage you to think about the Samaritan. <laughs> Did the Samaritan go by and say, ah, I feel so spiritual towards this guy. Be better. <laughs> and then walk away. Did the Samaritan say, you know, I just, I'm overwhelmed with compassion. I'll see you, dude. <laughs> The Samaritan stopped. And this is one of the things that we lose a lot. We think that spirituality is just about a feeling. We think that the Christian life is just about a feeling, about feeling spiritual enough. The truth is that action has to do with our spiritual life. We live in the world God put us in. Therefore, we act in this world. Therefore, our actions matter. So, what does it mean to be a neighbor? I got a few requests to wear a cardigan today to wrap up the series. Alas, I do not own cardigans, <laughs> so it was impossible. But I was thinking about how do, we, how do we fully summarize what it means to be a neighbor? And, and there's a movie out about this guy now. Uh, this, is, this is Fred Rogers and Officer Clemens here. And, and so a lot of times we think about uh, being a neighbor in very kind of abstract terms. We think about it as feeling good towards somebody, but, but the truth is that being a neighbor involves creative love. It involves, sometimes it involves controversy. See, this isn't just, we look at this now and this seems very normal, right? But at the time, there were these protests going on. They, they still had segregation, and so there were these segregated pools, and these black teenagers had gone to a white pool, and they tried to swim in it, and they got attacked, and they got kicked out, and it was a huge thing, right? 
So, so Mr. Rogers sees this on TV, and he's just overwhelmed with grief. He's overwhelmed at the hatred he sees, and, and from his own faith, he says, I have to speak about this. But he doesn't do what we normally would do. Normally, we would get on, and we would, we would lecture people, or we would yell at them, and we would tell them how bad they are. We would, we would say, hey, you know, you just gotta, you gotta figure it out, everybody. You know, like, what does that even mean? Mr. Rogers went, and he, he performed an act of creative love. And what he did is he brought this man who he had known for a long time, and they demonstrated what it could look like to share a pool together. He was a neighbor to this man. I saw an interview with this man years later, and he's talking about how nobody had really loved him except Fred Rogers. And, and he broke down in tears just talking about how Fred Rogers was always a neighbor to him. And I think about hospitality. I think about this God who created a world in the midst of a cold, dark universe. And I think, how can we mimic that? To me, the answer is hospitality. Fred Rogers looked at the world and he saw the hurt. He was very honest about the hurt. In fact, you're probably familiar with his quote about looking for the helpers. But he said his mom, anytime there was a tragedy, she would point out and she would say, hey, I know that this makes the world seem scary and dark, but always look. There's always somebody there to help. The helpers are mimicking the attitude and the image of God. So to me, hospitality is our nature. People, we reflect the image of God in that. And yeah, we're fallen, we're sinful, we're, we're, we're bad in some ways, but we still have within us this image of God, and this image is hospitable. This image wants to welcome in the strangers. And I want to tell you, a lot of times we do this from a sense of grief or guilt or, or things like that, but I want to tell you this hospitality is a place of joy. When you welcome in the stranger, when you do, so the Samaritan is walking along, right? The priest and the Levite had gone on by. The Samaritan stopped, and he took care of this man, and he saved his life. And I, I want you to imagine his state when he came back a few days later. They said, well, you owe a couple more denarii. denarii. Imagine the joy he would have felt at realizing he had saved a life. And this is the joy that we're welcome into when we practice hospitality together. And so this may feel like we were just talking about this because it was part of exegesis or whatever else, but, but the truth of the matter is I want all of us to have the joy that Christ has promised. And one of the steps to that is in practicing the hospitality that we see in the God of all creation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would welcome as you first welcomed us. Lord, I pray that we would have our arms open. Lord, I pray that we would embrace and find the joy of being hospitable as you are hospitable. Be among us. Help us to have an enjoyable Thanksgiving. Let us practice hospitality on that day. Amen.